Good morning. It has been a while since we've seen you all. I think our family has gained a lot of mass since you saw us. Uh, I like to tell this story about Moses. That when Moses used to get in trouble, I used to put my hand on his shoulder, but now I can't even get my hand around his shoulder. It is really, really good to be with you again today. It's so good. It's so good to, to be able to... I think one of the privileges we have in visiting churches is we get to see God's people in different places. And just to see God's family gathered together to proclaim Christ, to proclaim in communion that we're waiting for His return, um, it just binds us all together. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I'm going to give a very short update right now, and then we'll give a further update um, in the Sunday school time. Um, in case some of you here don't know us, we're the Rattans, um, related to the McMillans. So I am Joshua Ratton, and that is Abby Ratton, um, who is the daughter to Barbara and David McMillan. There they are. And uh, I'll just, my kiddos there is Moses, is right there. And his full name is Ruato Yuba Moses which means the Lord saves Moses, and we love that name. And then to Abby's left, or to her right, rather, there's Anna. And then um, to further to the right of Barbara, there is Grace, and that is my oldest daughter. And then we have Noah, Otim, and there's Jojo. Noah and Otim, I think, are in Sunday school. So we're, we're on furlough, so we're on home assignment right now. Yeah, we came back in January, and we're looking to go back to Uganda early next year. And uh, God is transitioning us to a location close to where we were, um, but to work with a specific family, indigenous family of churches that have asked us to do the same kind of work, but uh, founded upon their local ministries. And so we'll tell you more about that in Sunday school later today, but we're excited about that. Uh, this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, I do minister in Uganda, so this is going to be a good challenge for me to do this in a half an hour. Um, I was challenged by my wife to preach a sermon that was more directly focused on missions. <laughs> um, if you knew me, you'd probably laugh at that. But, uh, so I'm going to try to do that this morning, a uh, more explicit message on missions. And we're going to look at Paul's ministry as he describes it to the Thessalonian church himself. And um, as, we, as you turn there, I, I want to point out that we believe that the work of a missionary is not fundamentally different than the work of the body of Christ anywhere. It really is the work of the body of Christ everywhere. There, there's some people who uh, would argue that we've got to put missionaries in a separate category, and I disagree with that. Um, ministry itself is the life of the church. It is life in the body, and that's what we're all part of. That's what we're all called to do. Ministry is not the work of just the leaders in the church. The Bible says that the elders and the leaders in the church are there to equip the church itself for the work of the ministry. So the work of the ministry is what we all do. Whether we are here or in another culture, it is all about the life of the body in Christ. 
And so I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of missions. Because nowadays, I think we have lots of different ideas of missions. Some of us have, uh, have a good uh, view of missions. It brings up good ideas. Other people, they have a negative view of missions and missionaries. For some people, missionaries are heroes. Other people, missionaries are villains. <laughs> the heart of missions does not come from heroic people, though. It is not the result of courage, and it's not the result of some inner fortitude, and it's not even the result of liking other cultures. Although we do, in our family, love other cultures. I particularly love food, so I love food from everywhere. Um, and that's helpful. But that's not missions. Right? That's not missions. That doesn't qualify us for missions. The real heart of missions is actually very, very simple. It's a desire for others to join us with what we love. It's a desire to call in others to join us to love what we already love and enjoy. We love Christ, and we want others to join us in loving Christ, to join us in enjoying Him and depending on Him and glorifying Him and just, just paying attention to Him. I love Jesus Christ. He is everything to me. And the more that I enjoy him, the more that I am equipped to call in others to say, come enjoy what I love doing. Join me. We believe he's worth all of it. So when we do this, what happens is we begin to love like Christ John expresses this well at the beginning of his first letter. In chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 John, he says, What we have seen and what we have heard, we announce also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Thus, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John calls this heart fellowship. Isn't that interesting? In its most basic sense, fellowship is simply enjoying something with someone else. It is an expression of solidarity around something that we love or something we admire. Fellowship is all around us. There are fellowships centered on sports, medical methods, how to get healthy, Conspiracies, politics, cars, boats, alcohol, food, feeding the poor, social movements, social theories. It's unending. We fellowship around lots of things, don't we? Fellowship focuses our attention on something and it facilitates us bonding around that thing. It's the unity that results from a common love and attention that we give to something. And John wants us to bond and to get our, give our attention to where his fellowship already lies. John wants his leaders, his readers rather, to complete his joy by joining him in fellowshipping with what he already loves and enjoys. Do you see that there? He says, I want to tell you what I have already seen, what I have already heard, about this, this word of life. I'm announcing this to you so that you too can have fellowship with us. You know where our fellowship is already? It's with the Father. So you need to have fellowship with them so that we can have fellowship, what? Together. 
We talk about the Great Commission as a going out, and that's true. But it is a going out so we can call others in. We're calling them into something to join us in something. When we go on the mission field, our our desire is not to go out there and teach those people how to worship God. Our desire is to go out there and worship God with them. To be a part of them and for them to be a part of us. In a sense, John is reaching out to his listeners so that they would be drawn in. And fellowship with God precedes movements of God. Whether big or small, whether one person or many, it begins with a relationship of enjoying God together. And God calls his people to enjoy him and his ways along with him. That is what starts movements of God, whether it's just one or many. Fellowship with God then gives shape to our lives and it gives meaning to our lives. It gives us courage to draw our attention to Christ and to his gospel and it dramatically changes the way we live. Our fellowship with God produces a supernatural love and a supernatural courage. Two things that we need desperately these days. Biblical love and biblical courage. <laughs> and that love and courage leads us to imitate Christ by affectionately and lovingly sharing the gospel. And not only the gospel, but even our very lives. Committing our lives as an appeal to others on behalf of Christ to join us loving him together. It's the heart of missions. It gets lost in all the methodologies and all the busyness and all the stuff of ministry. The heart of missions is fellowship and enjoyment of God and calling others to join us in that. It's that simple. And this is played out in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. In chapter 2, Paul recounts with the Thessalonian church his coming to visit them and the appeal, the appeal that he made to them to turn to Christ. This morning, we're going to consider the outcome of Paul's fellowship with God in his ministry to the Thessalonian church. But before we get to chapter 2, I want to just lay out one more thing. And it's in chapter 1, verse 3. Or verse 2, rather. Before Paul recounts with the Thessalonians his time with them, we see that he recounts his time with the Thessalonians with his God. Keep this in the back of your mind as we walk through the text, because I think it frames our text. So listen to Paul's recounting of his prayer time with the Lord. I find this so um, convicting in my own heart. He says, We thank God always for all of you as we mention you constantly in our prayers. Wonder what we mention in our prayers constantly. Do we constantly mention others in our prayers? More than just this person needs this health problem fixed? Those are good. But what is Paul constantly mentioning? He says, because we recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
he is reminiscing with God about his time with the Thessalonian church and how he got to see God's grace through them during that time. And it just brings so much joy to Paul that it, it, it comes into his prayer times and he's, he's fellowshipping with God, just reminiscing about that. Does that sound like fellowship? Paul's fellowship with the Thessalonian is founded upon Paul's fellowship with God. Paul enjoys reminiscing with God about the faith of the Thessalonian church. So keep that in the back of your mind. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to see that Paul's visit to the Thessalonians had an unbreakable purpose, an undefeatable purpose, even when things appeared to go very wrong, because he had the courage in his God to declare the gospel. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, about our coming to you. It is not proven to be purposeless. But although we suffered earlier and were mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of much opposition. Paul is concerned about his time with the Thessalonian church that it was not pointless. And honestly, if you or me had experienced what Paul experienced, the ministerial chaos that he was in, we would be tempted to just give up and think of everything as a big failure. Paul must have been tempted to feel very overwhelmed because nothing seemed to be working. We find Luke's account of this journey in Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17. But Paul had wanted to go to the province of Asia, but the Lord prevented him from going there. So Paul received a dream indicating that he should go to Macedonia. So Paul and his companions walked hundreds of miles and then got on a boat for another uh, long sail, uh, sailboat ride. (laughs) That sounds funny. Um, And then they landed uh, in Macedonia and went to Philippi. And there he met with Lydia. You remember Lydia. Um, She became important to the church. Things seemed to be going great until he heals this slave girl of a demon that was afflicting her. And this demon had allowed the girl to make her owners lots of money. And when he healed her, she wasn't able to do that anymore. She was a future teller, a fortune teller. And so a riot ensues. Whenever you take people's money away from them, they get really mad. Even people who were very nice just a few minutes before. A riot ensues and Paul is thrown into prison before God miraculously saves him. And so Paul left Philippi then for Thessalonica. And after arriving, he began visiting the synagogues, them, urging them, trying to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. And some Jews believed, but when many God-fearing Jews and prominent women also came to faith, the remaining Jews that had not converted became very jealous, and they formed another mob, this time claiming that Paul was acting against Caesar by claiming that Jesus was a king instead of him. And so everything feels like it's unraveling for Paul. He has to leave the next day. How would you have felt if you were in Paul's shoes? 
after Philippi, I think most of us would have been tempted to lose confidence in preaching the gospel again. Look at what just happened last time, we would say. It's pointless. Some of us, I think, would fear that we just mess things up again. Maybe other of us would fear of others messing it up again. (laughs) But Paul's confidence is not in himself, and his confidence is not in other people. Look at what Paul says. He says, But although we suffered earlier, And we're mistreated in Philippi, as you know. We had the courage in our God. The reason Paul has this hope is because the gospel was preached even in the midst of opposition. Because Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Remember what Paul says in Romans? He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for those who believe, for the Jews first and also for the Greek, because in it, the righteousness of who? The righteousness of God is revealed. The reason Paul has confidence in this gospel is because the gospel is about the righteousness of God and not the righteousness of us. So Paul's courage is founded upon his trust in God, not in himself and not in other people. Many of us struggle to confidently confess the truth about Jesus because we're either waiting for our own, conf- our own perfection or we're looking for the perfection of others. And if that is you, I'm telling you, you're going to wait a long time. <laughs> Paul's courage in God allowed him to declare the gospel in spite of all the opposition he was facing, in spite of his own weaknesses and in the weaknesses of others. Until Jesus comes, there will always be opposition to the gospel. That is the world we live in. This is the air we breathe. What we need is courage to proclaim God's message. And that is going to rest on our confidence in God, that God will keep his word and do what none of us can do. We will all face opposition. What we need is courage. Sometimes opposition is hard opposition. Uh, A friend of ours is a convert from Islam, from a country, uh, run away from his family, had run away from his country, and his family is very powerful, and they found him some 2,000, 3,000 miles away and tried to have him poisoned. He lives in constant, constant pressure of being found by his family or another Muslim. And yet he's faithful. That is hard opposition, isn't it? There's also a soft opposition. There's the opposition that entices us to just live the easy life now and don't worry about these things. The, the, the opposition that says, we'll, we'll think that you're a nice person if you just will just change the gospel a little bit. Just don't make Jesus out to be who he really is. We need courage either way, don't we? And then Paul next, he, he turns to the, his appeal itself. And we're going to see that Paul's appeal to the gospel, his gospel presentation can be trusted because it comes from his desire to please God and not his desire to please people. 
do any, any of us have, have any struggles pleasing people, <laughs> wanting to please people more than God? Look at what he says in verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. The question that Paul is answering here is the source of Paul's appeal. What prompts Paul to bring this gospel message to the Thessalonians? And his answer is that his desire is to please the one who has entrusted him with the gospel. This is why it's worth listening to. Now, we make appeals all the time. Uh, When we're really young, our appeals are often, I think, the most honest. At least it is in, in my house, sometimes embarrassingly honest. Get me ice cream, my ice cream. Give me ice cream. <laughs> Give me the truck. No, no night night. Right? We just say what we want. I don't like you. We had a friend tell our, our little guy the other day, I don't like you. We don't usually say that, even if we think it. But as we get older, we find that that doesn't work so well. Sometimes the consequences are difficult. And so we have to come up with other strategies. And so we usually couch our, what we really want inside something else that we think somebody else wants. What prompts our appeals, even good things, can be true, but they can also be false. Unfortunately, sometimes false motives prompt our appeals, even our appeals to the gospel. Paul mentions these three false motives here. False motives of error, impurity, and deceit. And what makes all these three things, uh, what they all have in common, is that they originate, all three of them, in the heart of men and the heart of women instead of the heart of God. They come from the desires and the opinions and the concerns of people. And Paul contrasts these false motives with a different way of looking at his appeal. Instead of originating in Paul, they originate in God. Look again at how Paul sees this. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. This is not Paul's initiative. It is not Paul's idea. It is not Paul in Paul's control. Remember, he actually wanted to even go to a different province. <laughs> that was his plan, but God had different plans. Paul has been entrusted with God's gospel. God had approved him. That means God has authority over his gospel message, over its content, and over its delivery. He approves Paul, the deliverer, to deliver his message. So Paul speaks as someone who has been entrusted with something that belongs to someone else. Paul is simply a steward. And this is really good news for us. You know why that's good news? Because Paul is not very trustworthy by himself. In fact, none of us are, are we? If we were all very 
honest with what's going on in our hearts, we realize that we don't want that to be something people rely on. Better that they rely on God, because God is faithful when we are not. I want you to notice that when you are entrusted with something important, your aim is to please the one who entrusted it to you. You don't want to let that person down. I want you to think about this. If, if, <clears throat> if you entrust me with your child, who do you want me to aim to please? Your child or you? <laughs> I think you'd want me to please you. Otherwise, you're going to come home with a child who's eaten a lot of cake and ice cream and cookies and soda, and you're going to have to deal with the mess. <laughs> when you entrust somebody with something precious to you, you want them to please you. And so Paul views himself as one who has been entrusted with a precious message. His loyalty is to God, and the one he desires to please is God. And the source of Paul's appeal then is not Paul himself. Paul is moved not by his personal desire or his personal ambition, but by his love for his heavenly father. He speaks as one entrusted with a message that does not belong to him, but one that he loves dearly because he loves the one who gave it to him. Paul wants to invite others to enjoy what he is enjoying. Do you see it? Paul's personal concern is his relationship with the Father and the fellowship he enjoys with him and getting more people to fellowship with him. Paul goes on to say that his ministry, rather we're going to see in verse 5 that Paul's ministry approach then imitates Christ. Just like his Savior, Paul is pleased to share not only the gospel, but even his own self. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, although we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother caring, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had been, become very dear to us. You had become beloved to us. Paul's approach to ministry was to imitate Christ in the way Christ approached ministry. How do we approach ministry? And for that matter, how do we approach one another? That is going to be determined by your relationship with God. Today, it was said that, and I think in, in our prayer, we appeal to God as our Heavenly Father. Is God your Heavenly Father? Do you see him as a good father? Or is he an angry, hard God? How do you view him? 
Do you see that your good is tied up in him? Do you think that the best, the good life, the life everlasting with joy, the best life you could possibly have is with him? And that he's enough? Or is he just the best we can get? (laughs) See, ministry is not a program and it's not something we pay pastors to do. Paul says, as I mentioned already in Ephesians 4.12, that the church leaders are there to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Church ministry is the life of the body, confessing Jesus together that he is everything to us, that life is found in him, and we do that by bearing one another's burdens and loving each other and submitting our lives for the good of each other. Loving the way Christ loved us, he gave up everything for us. He forgave us when we did not deserve to be forgiven. And so we also forgive. We plead and we appeal to one another for the sake of the gospel and the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. That is ministry. Ministry is the process of building up one another into the likeness of Jesus so we can confess the truth of just how significant Jesus really is. How significant is Jesus? Peter says that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the one through whom all of God's plans are going to be realized on this earth, and you are the Son of God. You are the very one to whom I must give ultimate account. You are everything. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, I will build my church upon the confessors like this, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. That is the work of the ministry of the church, to confess that Jesus is this significant to us. And ministry is not a program for Paul either. It is the outcome of his relationship with God. I don't have time to go into this in depth, but Paul again contrasts false ministry with authentic ministry that comes from a deep and abiding relationship with God. If we are struggling to proclaim Christ then what we are struggling with is to enjoy relationship with Christ. The false approaches that Paul gives are flattery, a pretext to greed, and the glory, seeking glory for me. And we all struggle with wanting to go there because we all have this this deadly, fleshly, part of us that wants to find satisfaction outside of Christ and outside of God. But Paul says this is not what is motivating him. Instead, he was gentle among them. He describes his approach to ministry to these people as a nursing mother caring for his own child. He says, that is how affectionately desirous I am of you. Let me translate this slightly different, to hear it a different way. He says literally, longing for you in this way. Longing for you. Longing for you. Do you long for God's people? 
Do you long for the people that you want to share the word of God with? Longing for you, affectionately desires of you, we determine to share with you not only the gospel, but our very own lives, our very own souls, because you have become beloved to us. Consider what Paul is saying. There is an affection that Paul has for these people in Thessalonica. Paul is not talking about a vague love for general people. He's got real specific people in mind. And he loved them with the same affectionate love that Jesus has set upon Paul and he set upon us. And this love brought Paul to be ready not only to share the gospel, but even to submit his own life for their good in Christ. Does that sound like someone you know? He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that he might become the righteousness of God in us. I invite you sometime in that light to read again Isaiah 53. Read John 17 and hear Jesus' heart for his people. His desire to call them to be drawn in. Because in our modern world of carefully packaged programs and methodologies, this easily goes missing from our ministries. It certainly does easily become missing in missions. We desire success in ministry without risk. And that forces us sometimes to compromise the one thing that identifies with us with Christ most centrally, which is our love. We cannot love if we have no skin in the game. If we have nothing to lose, we, it is not a risk And yet what we risk is of no value compared to the glory that God has set before us and what he's promised for us. Barbara, my mother-in-law, on her emails, has a wonderful quote. I love reading it every time you send an email. He says, He is no fools who gives up what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. If you're willing to share your own self to bring the gospel, whether that's here in this body or that's overseas or anywhere, then you are following Christ in his heart for missions. Submit. We want to submit our life to the ministry of the gospel. Can we do this together? You here, us in Uganda, can we confess together that Jesus really is worth everything. A treasure that we can sell everything for. Let's pray. Father, we want to (laughs) our lives just so quickly become about us. It's amazing that you love us these tiny little specks in this massive universe you've created that you have made in your image, that you've given so much and loved so well. And we so quickly make life about us. And we want to find our joy and satisfaction in so many other things. And we easily hollow out your message, your gospel, even use it for wrongful gain. 
to please others so we can get something we want from them. Forgive us. Forgive me. Turn our eyes on Jesus. Allow us to look in his face. Be transformed in his likeness together. And allow your gospel to be something that that unites us as we fellowship around our love for you. And would we call in others to join us in what we love. I pray this in your name. Amen.